Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I am your host. Of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast. You can tweet at me at, at Jay Hoffman. That's two F's and one N. Don't give me two N's. I don't need that extra N. I got enough going on. Two F's and one N at Jay Hoffman. Thanks for listening. It's been a fun couple of weeks. Um, still coming down from that great episode we had with Paul Feig. Uh, hey, uh, Brian, the engineer, how much fun was it having Paul Feig in here? Paul was great. Paul, uh, as you mentioned several times, was a very snappy dresser, and he was very well-spoken, and his show was pretty, co- came, pretty good. And it was a snowy, gross day. Oh, yeah, it was a terrible day. And he still comes in looking sharp. Everybody else is like a, like a wet rat coming in off the, off the street. Me especially. <laughs> you especially. You look disgusting. But he looked terrific. And we've got another great guest today. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Lawrence Krauss. If you don't know him by name, throw his name into Google and you go, oh, that guy. That guy's on TV all the time. I know this guy. This is one of the, he is a public intellectual. He is a public scientist. He is an arbiter of good for the world. And let me just tell you, he's a professor at Arizona State University. He is the director of something called the Origins Project, which is a very... Sounds very mysterious. Yeah, that sounds like something out of a Joss Whedon show, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Director of the Origins Project. Whatever it is, it's cool. Um, he is a renowned physicist. He's won practically every important science award that you can win. He's uh, written 10 books, and his new one is called The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, Why Are We Here? And it is a deep science book that answers and asks important philosophical questions. Um, But if you're still thinking, I know this guy's name from somewhere in my Star Trek world, he wrote a book in 1995 called The Physics of Star Trek, which at first sounds like... um, that sounds like that could almost even be like a stocking stuffer, like the science of Star Trek. No, it's real science. It's like this guy tells you the transporter. Like, is this thing even possible? So it's a nice thick hardcover, not like a little. No, no, no. It's a, a it's a real book. Where book. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna in the physics of Star Trek, and certainly his new work. You're gonna learn about Einstein's theories and you know heavy, heavy, you know quantum mechanics, uh, all kinds of heavy stuff. But through the lens of Star of Star Trek, so like warp drive, what what would be possible? What we know about space time and fourth dimension and, and things like that. So that's what's going on. He's going to come on in just a few minutes. I met Doctor Kraus on the Star Trek cruise. Believe it or not, he really? was one of the guests. We had there were a couple of cool people, and there will be on the next Star Trek cruise uh, that are not just not just but not just uh, Trek people. So in addition to um, you know, Armin Shimmerman and uh, Robert Picardo uh, the, and Jonathan Frakes, who are going to be on the next one uh, last year, which was this year, 2017, there was a NASA uh, commander, a uh, pilot by the name of, oh boy, I did a full show with him. I was the moderator. Oh man. Oh, he was so cool. He flew three NASA missions. He was the pilot and then he was oh, the commander. Impressive. And I'm going to Google it. It I mean, he's a great guy, but I forgot his name. He was very, you know, he looked like a NASA guy. He even wore his flight suit. And he said, um, it was funny. 
because I came to it as the moderator. And I, when I usually moderate things, I'm a little prepared and I have some sketches of how things are going to go. But when I get to him, I'm like, hello, sir. You know, my name's Jordan. I'm the moderator. I had some suggestions. And he's like, oh, well, I have a whole flight plan for us. Rick Searfoss? Rick Searfoss. That was the dude. Yeah, he's a really good guy. And Rick, uh, Commander Searfoss was like, here's a flight plan, sir. First, we're going to do X. Then we're going to do Y. Then we're going to do Z. How does that check out for you? I'm like, aye, aye. You know, absolutely. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And he had like a whole slideshow for Jack. It was well, great. That, that's the kind of guy you sound like yeah. you're one fun fish. This is the dude who was like, yeah. And, and Searfoss was cool. He told some really funny stories and some really interesting stories about NASA. But also, they booked Dr. Lawrence Krauss. And he... Uh, blew everyone's mind about physics. So he's going to do that today when we get him on the show. But before we do, oh my God, I got to tell you something about physics in your kitchen (laughs) with blueapron.com. And all the kids who listen to Engage the Official Star Trek podcast know that we like to talk about Blue Apron at least once a month uh, because it is the best way to um, get really good food in your belly at a reasonable price and in a way that is not going to take up all of your sweet, precious time. Um, It's not like ordering out, and it's not like going out to the supermarket and buying provisions. It's a halfway mark in between. They will send you a recipe, and they will send you the very specific ingredients, and it takes about 30 minutes to cook a home-cooked meal that is fresh and good for you and really tasty. And they've got new recipes all the time. You got to go to blueapron.com slash engage because we have a special deal for listeners of this show. Blueapron.com slash engage. You get your first three meals free. Uh, you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash engage. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And I always use this example, Brian, because I've used Blue Apron in our house. When I go shopping and there's a recipe and it says you need a scallion, you go to the stinking store, you go to Key Food, you get a stack of scallions, a, a handful of them. You use one, you got 38 scallions in the fridge, and it rots. And yep. it sits there and it rots, and it's the Every worst. Every time. But with the beauty and majesty of blueapron.com, they send you one radish, one one scallion. You only need one. You're pretty bad to send you a radish when you need a scallion. No, no. Blue Apron's on top of it, man. They send you the one scallion. And it's just all you need. So that's what I love about BlueApron.com. And look, we talked about it, and uh, now I feel good about myself. All right, so let's now take a moment. Are we going to take a little break, or are we going to go straight into our... Take a little break. All right, collect yourself. You know, get, collect yourself. Get, seri- get ready. Psych yourself up. Dr. Professor Lawrence M. Krauss, this is like the... We've had some good guests. We had George Takei on. We had... Paul Feig, but this guy is like this guy hung out. This guy was on Barack Obama's committee, scientific committee in 2008. He's very impressive. This is the probably the coolest guy we've had on the show so far. Well, I don't know. We had Matt Singer on. That guy's cool too. <laughs> but no, I don't know. It's going to be heavy duty. So everybody get together. Let's hope I don't make a fool out of myself. And we'll talk to Dr. Krause in a moment. Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Okay, and we're back, and this is exciting. We've had a lot of schmoes and jokers on this show. But today we have somebody who uh, I'm a little nervous. I feel like I got to put my tie on because this is uh, a serious guest that we're about to beam in. Uh, this gentleman here, who I met on the Star Trek cruise, uh, is, and I'm going to hopefully get this title correct, the Foundation Professor of the School of Earth and Space Exploration at Arizona State University and the director of the Origins Project. Uh, and was a member of President Obama's 2008 Science Policy Committee, has written 10 books, has been published in Scientific American, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and has also been uh, on your TV. You recognize this guy's face, I swear. He's always yapping about science. So we're going to beam him in. Whether this kills him or not, we don't know. But allow me to hit the button. All right. Now, whether it's your atoms or your bits that are coming through... Uh Uh-oh, it doesn't feel well. (laughs) Oh, no. You have done, uh, Dr. Lawrence Krauss, welcome. You have done um, a lot of hypothesizing about transporting and beaming (laughs) in your book, 
from 1995, The Physics of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Now that you've been beamed finally, tell us, is it you or is it a facsimile of you? I can't remember anything anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's a new you. It's a new me. It's a new A new me. That's that's right. And and I have these three eyes now. And I can see all over the room. Well, it's it's fun because Dr. Krauss was on the Star Trek cruise that happened this uh, January and gave a presentation, which was uh, you know sort of a riff on your book from 95, The Physics of Star Trek, and uh, now has a new book that's out uh, in stores as of two days ago called The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far. Why are we here? Lawrence M. Krauss. So um, that title... <laughs> From the get-go, a little pugnacious, a little bit of a stick in the eye to religious belief. I guess you could say that, yeah. Uh, you are, uh, along with your uh, colleague uh, Richard Dawkins, there was even a documentary made called The Unbelievers, where you and Dawkins and some of the other, the horsemen of the apocalypse, yeah. as you're sometimes yeah. called, yeah. you actually did a speaking tour about atheism. Well, about reason. I mean, we, we often appear on stage together, and, and then actually what happened was the, the guys who directed it wanted to make a rock and roll tour film about science. They'd, they'd seen some events we did, and they thought they were like rock concerts, and they said, can we follow you around backstage or behind the scenes and just see what it's like to be, well, whatever they would call a celebrity scientist or something like that. But, <laughs> but, but, but it was, you know, Richard and I have a lot of fun on stage and, and talk about things, not just religion, but science, and... Um, and uh, yeah, and, it, and it's called the Unbelievers, and for a good reason, because we argue that that the real world is so much, so much more interesting than the world that was made up by Iron Age peasants who two thousand years ago who didn't know the Earth orbited the Sun. That's why this is the greatest story ever told. This is a story of the real, of the real humanity's amazing intellectual journey to understand the universe, and and it's a journey that's so much more interesting than the, than the Bible because it, the universe keeps surprising us at every turn. Well, well, I mean, if I had to sum up your philosophy, having watched that film, having watched some uh, lectures you gave on YouTube, and having read two of your books, I haven't read all ten. I've read two, Sorry. but it's... Well, you know, I, I like to tell people that reading them really isn't important. It's buying them that's important. <laughs> um, let, let me throw this at you. If I had to sum up your philosophy, it's basically that... You shouldn't let your own point of view distract you from the reality of the world. Yeah, that's not my philosophy. That's the philosophy of science. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, well, but science is, is, is a lot about, you know, you learn from what you observe. You do an yeah. experiment and you observe it. And, and you question yourself, as Richard Feynman would say, the person you most have to suspect is yourself. Because we all want to believe, whether it's Star Trek or the X-Files or yeah. whatever, we all want to believe. And so... We have to uh, part of the scientific process, which is really what I'm, I'm I'm extolling in some sense in this book, because there are lots. There's a wonderful history of scientists and characters in this book, but they, there's wrong terms and there's dead ends, and scientists are prejudiced and biased because scientists are people. But the scientific process overcomes that, and we we manage to make progress. And the process says, you know, you're skeptical of others, skeptical of yourself. You rely on evidence, and then you have to test your ideas and. And you have to look at many different sources, and and all of that would be so. It, it, it's not just for science. In fact, our society right now, right at this present time, would be so much better. The politics of our society, if we if we applied those principles to say democracy. Sure, sure. But 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 so much of what we n- know about advanced physics mm-hmm. comes with the uh, preface of what I'm about to tell you doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, that's true. It, a lot of things don't make sense because, in fact, we what is common sense? Common sense is something that arose in us in an evolutionary perspective to help us escape from lions on the savanna, you know, in Africa millennia ago and many millennia ago. And uh, and that's fine, but common sense didn't prepare us to, to, to understand quantum mechanics. But what's amazing is the brain that evolved, uh, happily those brains that evolved to escape lions, Uh, and led to us amazingly, and it really is amazing, have been able to probe the universe on scales where our common sense doesn't make sense anymore. And what we have to realize is the universe doesn't give a damn about what we think is sensible. And what we have to do is, is, is learn how the universe behaves and then try and understand why that makes sense in some more general sense. Where we get around our own myopia. Science in that sense is like, is like art and science fiction and music and, 
and 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 all, all kinds of literature. It it sort of opens our minds. It forces us to reappraise our place in the cosmos, and that means I, I once wrote that that science kind of makes you uncomfortable. And I thought, wow, that's maybe that's not a good thing to say. But being always in your comfort zone means you're never being confronted by anything new. Yeah. And so you have to be a little bit uncomfortable to to open your mind. And and, and you know, it's like going traveling can be uncomfortable, but you experience new things. And sure. I, yeah, it sucks a, to be on the plane, but when you when you land in Paris, you're like, wow, that's a nice place. Yeah. And you know, there's here. a there's an old saying that I actually have a, a little clip that I gave my daughter, but it says. Uh, uh, ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are supposed to do. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, talking about, um, you know, th- things that you can't see and, and, and shocking. Like you mentioned quantum mechanics. Yeah. Now, yeah. This is a thing that um, there are probably a lot of listeners to the show <laughs> who are embarrassed to admit they've heard that term 500,000 times. They don't on actually Star know Trek. what. Oh, on Star Trek. <laughs> quantum mechanics, at least as far as I understand it, and you tell me when I become incorrect, because I only understand this a little bit. We're talking about the um, the physics of the very, very, very small. Generally the very, very small. I mean, that's where quantum me- quantum mechanics gets manifest. What's amazing nowadays is we're building materials where, where in some sense, quantum mechanical effects can be uh, affect macroscopic systems. But generically, quantum mechanics really is uh, it, it, it sort of as important, and I was going to say is observable, but more importantly, it 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 is the governing principle on things on atomic scales and, and below. Certainly. And and the the way things work on that level are in many ways counterintuitive to the way things work in the world. For example, mm-hmm. there is I can't I mean you're going to explain this a million times better than I, but there is a vast distance between uh, electrons mm-hmm. and there's a lot of space mm-hmm. and the the you know in theory. You know, you can pour water into a glass of water, and there's nothing in science that says the water shouldn't just come out the bottom. Yeah. The, but yet it doesn't. No, it, solid materials, you listeners may have just heard me bang on the table yes. with this microphone's on. Solid materials are really not solid. They're mostly empty space. It's the, and, and, and it's the fields, but the electric fields between the electrons in my fingers and the, and the electrons in the, in the atoms in this table that stop me from going through. Right. It's one of the many aspects of reality. I mean, the book is also a discussion of how the, the world as we see it is really an illusion. Yeah. Our experience really masks an underlying reality that is so different in so many ways. Unbelievably different. And, and, and the universe at its fundamental scales is not designed for our existence. In fact, it's, it's almost incompatible with our existence. If it weren't for several accidents like some field froze in empty space in the early history of the universe we wouldn't be here and and uncovering those layers of reality is the joy of science in some sense and i think the joy for everyone because you know whenever you see the world a new way whenever you go aha that's kind of orgasmic almost yeah and in your book you always and uh in the the physics of star trek also in a way maybe even more in that because what you do in the physics of star trek is you take something from star trek warp warp drive, transport, or something like that. And you first start off, you, you make it a little nice for the reader. You go, you know what? Star Trek's pretty cool. It's rooted in a little bit of science. Yeah. And you explain how, uh, you know, like doing a slingshot around the sun mm-hmm. kind of does make sense for time dilation or, mm-hmm. or, or the transporter sort of makes sense. But then you say, but listen, I got to be honest. Here are the 25 reasons why mm-hmm. it'll never work. But then it ends with, but you never know. Like, it's always a little bit well, positive. Well, like, well, here are the things in there that well, do make sense. Well, when I wrote that book, I, it was a dilemma initially um, because I thought, I don't want to write a book saying this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. This, that's no fun for anyone. So what I wanted to do, and not everything in Star Trek is wrong. I, I, there's things in the book that, are, that Star Trek gets right. But what I wanted to show is that even when Star Trek gets something wrong, there's something in the real world that's that's close by that's even more interesting so I wanted to use Star Trek as a hook yeah. for readers to learn about the real world so so yeah this doesn't work the trench doesn't work but you can learn a lot about quantum mechanics and nuclear physics and information technology and all sorts of neat things that we can do and so whenever whenever that was the case I, th- I thought it was uh, it was good to point out that there was something even more interesting because I do think truth is stranger than fiction but uh, yeah uh, that, that's the philosophy I get from this new book is um you know, and because each chapter does have uh, taken from a Bible verse, uh, which is part of your, uh, let's say, pugnacious spirit, um, there, there, you know, it's like you know, you don't have to look to, to myth and story. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening right here 
that may not make sense, like higher dimensional thinking or, or, or you know. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of cool stuff that doesn't seem to make sense, but it's cool. And the neat thing is it it's real. <laughs> yeah. The real universe is so interesting. You don't need the superstition and the myth and the and all, all the rest of the stuff. But, and, he, and, but yeah. here's a, let me play devil's advocate okay, for a moment here. Okay, good. Because we shouldn't I'm agree too much. Relatively, relatively, relatively intelligent guy. Me, I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. I did okay in science. Uh-huh. Maybe an A minus, you know, okay. in physics. I never took AP physics, but an A, let's say B plus A minus. I did okay. all right. Okay. When I really sink my teeth into Einstein's theories, mm-hmm. Just come close to really getting it. When I read your book, I'm like, yeah. And you're talking about the train and the photon mm-hmm, of light mm-hmm. going back and forth, mm-hmm. and how it's the same time for me as the observer. Mm-hmm. But when I get off the train, I'm a little older, or they're mm-hmm. little. I almost get it. Uh-huh. I'm very close. I'm like te- eleven twelfths of the way there, right? Uh-huh. And I've read. Uh, I also read uh, Brian Greene's book, The Elegant Universe, mm-hmm. which is another one that I loved. And I almost got. I put that book down. And I say I almost understood this book. So here's the thing. <clears throat> There's part of me uh-huh. that when I look at these theories like Einstein and whatnot, I kind of have to take it on faith. <laughs> well, well, so what the heck does that mean? <laughs> because at the certain day I go, I believe, I believe in this, and I know that smarter people than I understand it, and I don't quite understand super string theory or some of these other, other things. I'm going to have to take it on faith, and that in a way kind of spits in the eye of a lot of what this is doing. Well, look, we all, I mean, there's some, we all take some things, we can't be experts at everything. And you don't even have to understand every detail of science, but what's a, what, a, what inf- I was gonna say infuriates me, but maybe disappoints me is a better word, is that somehow people say, you know, I'm not gonna understand the details of quantum physics. Therefore, I won't even try and because I'm, you know, or people say to me, you know, I just don't do science. I, mm. I just don't get science. And and the amazing thing is, in our society, you're allowed to like music. You're encouraged to like music without being a mu- musician. Right. I don't you're read music. To, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can like good music without being a musician. You can like good art without being an artist. You can like Shakespeare without being a, a write a playwright. But for some reason, people think you have to be a scientist to like science. And this stuff is cool. So you. They're different levels of appreciation. And if you can understand all the different voices in a Bach cantata, I'm sure you understand, you appreciate it more than I might uh, just listening to it. But I can still enjoy it. And, and so you don't have to master everything to, to enjoy it. And, and I actually do think, I wrote the, I, I try in all my books, but in this particular book, in the, in the greatest story ever told so far, there's some pretty sophisticated stuff, but I try and walk you through it so that if, without math, so that if you want to puzzle through it, uh, I think you can actually get the general perspective of not, if not every single detail, but yeah. at least get where it's coming from and sometimes actually understand everything in detail and go, wow, I really... You know, I really get it, and I, so I, you know, I, since I write books, I every now and then have to see reviews, although I try Uh-oh. not to. And <laughs> and the interesting thing is, our society, it's like we celebrate scientific ignorance because we'll say a good review of a you know a history book or an econ- economics book in the New Yorker or some other magazine is you know it's like twelve, fifteen pages long and it's detailed, but a good review of a science book is it boggled my mind. And that's a great review. And it's like you're, you're allowed to turn your brain off when it comes to a science book. You're allowed to say, I don't understand it. But but if you puzzle through books like mine, I, or certainly my own books anyway, there's a lot you can get out of it. And I think you can actually, if you're willing to take the time, sort of get these concepts. Uh, and if you just want to breeze through, you can say, look, I understand the... I see where things are coming I get from it and top where it's going. Yeah, yeah, and so I think there's all sorts of different ways of reading books like like mine and enjoying them, and we should enjoy them because this is part of our culture. That's one of the things I I, I talk about in the book, but elsewhere, science has the. I was, it's not a virtue in some sense. It's a it's a handicap that it also produces technology. It mm. produces the technology that make making it possible for you and I to have this conversation and for people to listen to it outside this room. But that means that people say, well, you know, does it make a better toaster? I mean, if it doesn't make a better toaster, then why should I care about it? And the point is that science is part of our culture. And the ideas of science are in the, among the coolest that humans have ever come up with. And like art, music, and literature, it changes the way you think about yourself. And that's the reason to read this stuff, because it really 
these transcendental questions, like the question in the subtitle of my book, why are we here? Science sheds new light on those kind of questions that everyone has. You don't have to be a scientist to ask. You, you have know, to how be a five-year-old kid and, to yeah. ask your parents, why in fact, did, it's, where did I come from? In fact, all kids are born scientists. We just yeah. beat, it, beat it out of them in school, actually. Well, that's incredibly frustrating to me, like when um, they talk about funding um, particle accelerators. Like mm-hmm. there was going to be a giant one in Texas, three times the size of CERN. Yeah. And then they said, well, we don't really know what the economic implications is going to be, so we're going to kill it. We can't afford it in our country because it's $10 billion, the cost of the air conditioning for, for three days in the war in Iraq. But, uh, you know, it's really kind of, kind of sad. And we can't, well, take a, a more recent example, which offends me tremendously in the current budget that's proposed by the person who we call our president. Uh, and uh, so they want, they want to cut $900 million dollars from the science that I talk about in this book. So mm-hmm. 20% of the budget, which of the agency that's the pre- chief agency funding all physical science in the United States, cut that 20%, cut, the, cut completely the National Inst- uh, Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Institute of Museums and Libraries. You add all that up, that's $1.6 billion. Mm-hmm. And in that same budget, they add $2 billion for a wall with Mexico, the first payment, and it's supposed to defend us on something. But as as I as one of my favorite quotes, I just read a piece on wrote a piece on this is from a the first director of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, who was asked, "Would that accelerator aid in the defense of the nation?" And he said, "No, but it'll help keep the nation worth defending." And that's the point. There's no sense defending right. a nation that is no longer worth defending. And if you wonder what makes America great, it's the legacy we leave for the future, the progress we make. And and science is is a key part of that, not ju- not just via, via the technology it produces, but by the, the by the fact that it makes our human lives more interesting. Yeah, the same and, as, same and, as and not only that, it, it's it's you know the, a lot of make America great again is is nostalgia for space race era stuff. Yeah, and a lot of that was politically motivated or motivated by Cold War beating well, all the Soviets. Yeah. But there was a lot of fringe benefits that helped the private sector. And you oh. would think that oh, everybody would recognize that, that throwing money at science when you don't quite know what the outcome is going to be is still going to be a good idea. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, every time you build remarkable new technology, there'll be amazing side benefits. CERN produced the World Wide Web, which, after all, I think affects people's lives more than anything right. else. But at the same time, I don't think you can necessarily justify the expenditure saying, we're going to do this, and there are going to be side benefits. In fact, we, in fact, actually, the, the particle physics community in the 1990s, when they tried to defend this new accelerator, in my opinion, made the mistake of saying of talking about the side benefits. Mm. But if the it, but if it's worth it, it's worth it for doing the reason you're doing well, it. Well, you gotta you gotta talk down to the dummies. You gotta yeah. you gotta yeah. give them a bone. And I, mean, I used to think that I used to think Congress was dumb in the old days. Boy, now you know. <laughs> you know, you you mentioned uh, CERN and uh, the you know the U.S. Right now, are we are we in, in America? Do you think we've officially taken uh, second place to Europe in terms of science? I mean, I was thinking the tra- the Trappist planets that were just discovered yeah, that yeah. was an EU initiative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. CERN is a, you know an EU initiative. initiative. Yeah, I mean, there's some American money in there. Not to get too uh, America. I'm wearing you yeah. know this was an international podcast, yeah. but yeah. you know most of our listeners are American. Star Trek was made in America and. Are we, quote-unquote, we, are we taking a back seat here? We're working very hard to take a back seat, I think. And, and I think that's exactly what this president is, really is trying to do to the country, is make it, make it be a second-rate power. Because, mm-hmm. because you keep out the good young students from around the world sure. who want to come here. The United can't States bring their laptops great. on the yeah, plane we, now. The United States, is, if it's great, it's partly great because we have been able to attract the best students in the world to our graduate schools, some of whom stay here and do amazing things, make Google or wherever they be, but, and others who go back to their own countries and contribute to their e- economics and make that society more more open and, and more democratic in many ways. And so, um, so keeping out good young people, look at the history of physics. We are, the United States became the leader in physics because a lot of those people left Germany in the Second World War, sure, and we brought, we accepted them in uh, eventually. In some cases, kidnapped them. Yeah, when, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and and so I think that's part of it. But but also saying that we're we're somehow too impoverished to 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 spend what is by the standards now not a lot of money to try and 
um, support the research infrastructure. And by the way, there's good evidence, and, and there, the National Academy of Sciences are in a, a bit of study, I think, uh, something about uh, something about the gathering storm. I forget the, what the exact title was. But it was talking about the need to support fundamental research. If you look at the current gross national product in the United States, and it, you can argue at least 50% of it was based on expenditures spent on research, a fundamental curiosity-driven research a, a generation ago. Mm. You know, you, you try. You don't get the new discoveries by saying, "Well, build me a better, right. a better this." Those discoveries come along, and then you build a better this. And, sure. and and so, fundamental research has many benefits, economic ones certainly, but it also it has is benefits for our for our life, the quality of life we have, and the sense of being able to be amazed by the universe. If you don't have awe and wonder about the universe. Then what can you be? What can you have awe and wonder about? You know, in in your book, you talk a lot about exactly that, having awe about the world around us, and, yeah. and sometimes we are unaware of things happening uh, just just beneath our feet. And we talked about quantum. Yeah, mechanics. Yeah, there's a great quote I love that that, that that I think I begin the book with a quote from um, J. A. Baker from the Peregrine. Um, this is the hardest things to the hardest thing of all to see is that which is really there. I think. <laughs> And it's true in many ways in, yeah. in our lives. Well, so here's here's something uh, relatively recent. In your book, you talk about Maxwell's equations and how that was the biggest the biggest thing since sliced bread in science at the time. Yeah, in the nineteenth century. And you 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 discuss you know Isaac Newton getting hit on the head by the apple, all those big yeah. things. Twenty twelve was the Higgs boson discovery. Mm, yeah, or July fourth. So now July fourth. There's a real reason to celebrate July fourth. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you just you just love pissing people off, don't you? <laughs> well, I like to provoke a little. I guess. So Keeps me uh, the Higgs boson mm. twenty twelve uh, was discovered or was confirmed because people kind of knew it was there, but they confirmed it. Is that as big a deal as Maxwell's? Equations. Is well, that... I mean, we don't have historical perspective. Maxwell's equations were, were over a hundred years ago, which were, I mean, they changed the world in, in in every way. They made possible the modern technology that governs our lives. So, sure, it's hard to it's hard to top that. But right. But the discovery of the Higgs boson has changed completely the way we think about ourselves and our fundamental reality. That the it demonstrates that there really is this invisible field everywhere throughout space. It sounds like I know that you like Star Trek, but it sounds like Star Wars almost. <laughs> a, but but. Uh, there is an invisible field everywhere, and it affects us. And we wouldn't be around if that field wasn't there. It it changes things on a really, really fundamental scale about how we view ourselves. In particular, it addresses the question: Why are we here? Because it really turns out we're here because of a cosmic accident. The universe wasn't designed for us. It, there's no significance to our existence except that a field froze in a certain configuration, just like on a window. Ice crystals can freeze in many different directions, and there's no significance to the directions in which they, you, these beautiful patterns happen. Sure. If you lived on one of them, you'd think there was. As I say, you'd probably create physics that would explain why the laws were different along that direction, and if you and you'd invent gods that would explain why that direction was good, and there'd be wars about whether that direction or some other direction was good. But but it's just an accident, and in a, and it turns out that many of the, that our significance, our cosmic significance, is an accident. We make our own significance, however, by our lives and the society we create and and the, the world we leave for our children. So it's not as if a universe without purpose is purposeless for us, or that a universe with without that the, without us the universe makes no sense. That the universe wasn't created for us. It's incredible solipsism to to think that that without us the universe makes no sense. When you say us, do you mean this planet or do you mean no, this universe? No, I just mean this uh, us. People. A species. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Humans, sure. as if somehow, as if somehow the whole universe was created so we humans could talk on 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 podcast. Because <laughs> there there are some, if you believe in the multiverse mm -hmm. theory. Um, there I don't. By the way, believe is not a word we scientists should use. We, it's either likely or unlikely. But I don't believe anything. Okay, okay if you no. uh, ascribe to potentially <laughs> agreeing with uh, the multiverse uh, concept, uh, that would mean if you if that theory to me is a stick in the eye to all people who think, oh, God created us because this this concept means that there's an infinite amount. Of all permutations, including none of it. Right? Yeah, no, there's lots. Of, it, it, and and the multiverse idea is well motivated by what we think in current current physics. We can't prove it, although actually there are experiments we could do to see if there were other universes, and I've written about them in, in scientific papers. But but you're right. For me, absolutely, it says, look, you know, 
why do we exist in this universe? Because we can. And and uh, it would be really amazing to find ourselves living in a universe in which we couldn't live. That would be really worth a book. Uh, but but uh, uh, and so it's a kind of cosmic natural selection. And it and there's reasonable arguments why we think there may be many universes, each of which may have different laws of physics, in each of which the Higgs-like fields behave differently, and therefore the laws that that any any being observes would be different. Now, you see, in those other universes, we can't, if they are there, we can't say there's no life. It's just the life like us couldn't exist. But how do we know whether there's no, when you change all the parameters of something, right. you know, because while on Star Trek, most of the aliens have two hands and two legs and a head. Right. In, in, when we think about the real possibilities of existence, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Right. Why, we can't, would th- why would there be physical forms? Well, yeah, I mean, we don't know. Uh, we don't know the set of all possible types of intelligences that could exist. We can imagine them, but I'm convinced that our universe and or other universes, if they're possible, can uh, can do much better than anything we can imagine. Do you believe that there is uh, intelligent life nearby? Like at what do you Proxima- mean nearby? Proxima Centauri, you know, the closest... Well, I, I think it's unlikely that it's... Well, uh, uh, I think that there's probably life everywhere. It's ubiquitous. I, suspect, I don't just well, mean like an amoeba floating yeah, around. I mean, like, is there a guy on well, a podcast at another planet? Well, that's somewhere? we got to get there. So I do think that there's microbial life probably elsewhere in our solar system. And in Proxima's story, maybe... The, we don't know if those planets are really habitable, by the way. When we say they're habitable, or when some people say they're habitable, they really are guessing. Because, you know, they're saying this looks like there should be liquid water on this planet, Earth like well, the Earth was frozen solid 600 million years ago. It was in the habitable zone, but it was frozen solid. So, you know, the, you have to worry about the effects of continents and other things that they really don't put in their models. So you should take all that with a grain of salt. But having said that, life, I think, is ubiquitous. But intelligent life took almost 4 billion years on this planet to evolve through a series of interesting accidents and happily the fact that we weren't the planet wasn't destroyed by asteroids or other things. And so... It doesn't seem imme- easy to immediately evolve intelligent life. It mm. takes a while. And therefore, I think it's probably pretty rare. But there's 100 billion ga- uh, stars in our galaxy. Right, right. And so I suspect even if it's pretty rare, they're all over the place. Now, nearby is a different... It, what, cosmically, what you mean by nearby depends on the question you ask. But sure, sure. I don't know if it... I doubt... I'd be, I'd be amazed if there were... Well, I'd be shocked if there were other intelligent life forms only four light years away. But maybe within the near, nearest four thousand or forty thousand light years, there might be. The problem is, it's a big, it's a big galaxy, it's a big universe, and so if those systems exist, if those li- intelligent systems exist, we're not guaranteed to ever know about them. Right. Unlike right. Star Trek, where you can travel. Well, all I mean, the you galaxy. talk about this quite a bit, which is the only real way to contact um, would would have to involve wormholes, mm-hmm. which are real, right? Wormholes are, are for sure real. Um, well, but wormholes manipul- are real. Uh, well, no, let's step back. <laughs> not not necessarily the real. Um, if wormholes, stable wormholes, cannot exist unless there are forms of energy that that may or may not be allowed to exist, as I show in the in, in the physics of Star Trek, stable worm, you can show that if if normal matter or energy is the only thing you have, you try and create a wormhole, the mouth either end of the wormhole, the two mouths of the wormhole will collapse to form black holes at a time scale that's shorter than the time it takes to go through the wormhole. So there are no traversable wormholes in nature unless there are new weird forms of energy, which there may be. But certainly given what we know to exist in the universe, you can't say that wormholes are are possible or real. St- stable wormholes, that stable, is. Stable. Wormholes that are useful right. for sneaking Because wormholes, ex- they, they like pucker up and be, and they it's the, well, the, it's the time space that's curved around well, and they, touching one another. And well, wormholes are shortcuts through space, sort of like, you know, bending a piece of paper and then, and then sort of taping the edges together. But the problem is, so that you can imagine doing that, that's certainly possible to imagine in general relativity. But the kind of energies you need to do that are, are kinds we just don't know if you can do it. And the only kind of interesting wormhole, as Star, Star Trek would tell you, is the kind you can walk through. Sure. Yeah. Or send a ship through. Yeah, or send a ship through right. or do something. Because <laughs> otherwise, I mean, as you explain, <clears throat> you know, warp drive, there are some aspects of it that are that are rational, but the propulsion needed to do it, to, to send a ship, would be, you know, you need about five billion suns to... Uh, 
worth of uh, jet fuel, which is mm. unlikely. And then yeah, yeah, no. I mean, yeah. the interesting thing when I wrote that particular book was that the most fantastical things from Star Trek that you can imagine, which should be time travel, warp drive, wormholes, those are the things you can't say are impossible. Now you can say <laughs> they're impractical, but you can't say they're impossible. And it's amazing to me that those are the things I thought. Well, you know, those are the clear things you you, you can't say. You know, you could do, but. But in fact, uh, we we really we there each of them depends on on physics at the forefront that we don't fully understand that makes them at least possible even if they're not likely. Can you tell? Whereas us? the transporter, unfortunately, is impossible. Right. Well, you know, with that one, even Doctor McCoy doesn't like the transporter. Yeah, so. we, yeah. yeah. Can he's you? the only real sort of pseudo, except for, well, no, I was going to say he's the only real scientist, but I guess that is. <laughs> anyway, yeah. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is engage the official star trek podcast can you tell us a little bit about uh miguel alcubierre who uh (laughs) Is this guy? I don't know too much about him. Is he somebody to take seriously, or are you? Uh... Well, the work he did. It's the, uh, the only thing I've ever heard him for is the also is the fact that he realized that in general relativity you could r- have a solution that would look like warp drive. And that his, would, his that numbers make... check out, though. Oh yeah, yeah. But the but but as as he, I'm not sure he, but others quickly realized while, while this is po- possible in principle, it's really not possible in practice without even if it were possible to create the kind of energy that is necessary to do that, which again is an open question. The amount of energy you'd need to make it happen would be so unbelievably large that you'd really rather just have a rocket ship. Um, so yeah, so Physics of Star Trek was a book that came out in '95, and I was looking at it, and again. I did update it again. You have the original, I see. Although, I, although you have that looks like the the version from the Book of the Month Club or something, because the original version was actually a holographic. Oh, so the color cover. Yeah. You should try and find one of the originals. I should. Yeah. I should go on eBay and yeah, find, find it. Yeah. Um, or buy it directly from yeah, your website. Yeah, so you I don't know. I, well, I don't think I sell them on my oh, website. I don't dang. do that certainly. Sort of but this, but, it, it but has there is a, a new, But I revised it. I think in. In, the, in 2000 or something after to, to up more, well, to look at the physics, but also to look at some of the new Star Trek stuff. Some of the new Star Trek yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to mention was that it, when I was looking at it again recently, there was something that I found really interesting. You were talking about, um, I think in the context of uh, transporting data mm-hmm. and whether it was important to have the physics. It was about the, about the transporter. It's versus the phys- bits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, data versus bits, and it was the is is it the. Is, so you were talking a little bit about the book itself, about yeah. you're talking about libraries, yeah. And is it the idea that's important, or is it the actual printed stuff yeah. on the page? And what you had done in 1995 was you had basically predicted Kindle. You had predicted buying an Amazon account and having books out there on the in the mm-hmm. cloud, mm-hmm. and then downloading them to your device while you're online at the supermarket and reading a few pages and. Uh, there you go. And if I'd only put my money where my mouth was. <laughs> if you'd only then, invested wisely. Yeah, yeah, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. You need today. to bend space time a little bit, go back to that. And um, so that that's a lot of fun. But you say you had updated it because there was new stuff in Star Trek. I do want to ask you, we talked about this a little bit while we were on the boat together, uh-huh. which was, I think you had a lot of fun on the Star Trek. It, thing, I right? did. It was a lot more fun than I thought it would be. Yeah, you got, you got to hang out. Well, so what, I'll tell the listeners. You gave two talks on the Star Trek cruise, I think, right? Uh, I think two, maybe. Yeah, two, maybe. I can't even remember. There might have been three. Yeah, well, there, there were was some cocktails in, involved. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. There was at least two. Well, there was an emergency day because it was so rocky. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, in. yeah. And then we all pitched in and gave yeah. another talk. So I was at one of them, and it was, you know, you were explaining what inertial dampeners are, mm, yeah. which is, mm. you know, make sure Captain Picard doesn't mm-hmm. get his brain yeah, splattered yeah. when he goes to warp. And yeah. You were showing the clip from Star Trek VI where um, the the Klingon uh, uh, killers come on the ship yeah, yeah. and they shoot somebody and Chancellor the blood, Gorkon. Yeah, yeah, and the blood comes out mm-hmm. and it floats in zero gravity and yeah. you're like Star Trek got it right. This is yeah. cool. So you first you butter the crowd up with how Star Trek gets it right, of course, and then you go in for the kill on how Star Trek got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, and but before you did that, there's a little murmur in the crowd, and in walks in Captain Kirk. Oh yeah, William sure. Shatner himself sat 
in the little theater. Center, yeah. It wasn't even a theater. It was like a club. It was like yeah, a nightclub. It was like a nightclub, yeah. And um, sat down front and center to watch you give your yeah. talk. Yeah. Now, you've spoken... You spoke at the Sydney Opera House in front of zillions of people. You you gave a an impassionate speech about reason at the Reason Rally in yeah. DC and the mall for thirty thousand people in the rain yeah. chanting. And but to talk on the Star Trek cruise in front of Captain Kirk, that had to have been something a little. I was more. really really um, honored that Bill came. Uh, to, it was a morning early. They put me at the early morning, which I thought was hard for any of us, but. Uh, yeah, it was really it was really nice, and it was a little intimidating because um, I couldn't use any Captain Kirk jokes. <laughs> but but um, but I knew that he was kind of interested in this, and and yeah. actually, what you may not know, I, and I think we talked about there, is I actually done a TV show with him years before on based on my book, really, and um, so we'd gotten to know each other a little bit, uh, but we hadn't seen each other in years, and I and I'm and I wasn't one hundred percent certain he remembered me, but we we really it was it was very. It was intimidating to be talking about the physics of Star Trek, but it was something I always wanted to do. I'd always wanted him to be in the audience when I talked about it, so it was nice to have him there. And we, as you know, we did a number of other events yeah. on the cruise and sort of uh, we had a two-man show there for a little while at the on the last night, I mm. think. Yeah, which I kept trying to get off the stage on. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's cool. So, so you know, you, you know you're, you're serious about your work, but you, you understand and love science fiction. I mean, you get a kick out of it in a way well, that... Well, it's like Stephen Hawking, who wrote the foreword for that for my book, The Physics of Star Trek, said that, you know, science fiction... Uh, like Star Trek, serves a, a serious purpose. It helps expand the human imagination. And it's the same thing that science does. So anything that gets people asking questions is something I, I, I enjoy. And of course I have fun. I have fun with the science. And, and, and if you want to get people interested in something, you can't, you know, just... The big, I often tell teachers the biggest mistake you make is assuming your students are interested in what you have to say. Because if you do, you're lost right then there. You have to make it interesting, which means going to where they are. Right. And if I could use Star Trek as a hook to have fun with Star Trek, but also as a as a portal, if you want to use a kind of Star Trek term, but as a portal to understand the real universe, it's great because people are intimidated by science, sure. but they're not intimidated by Star Trek. Right. And then most people don't even know they're interested in science, but then then you start you go to a party and they say, "What are you doing?" You say, "You're a physicist," and they go, "Oh, how about those Yankees?" And then. And then, but if you then you start talking there, they're interested in warp drive or wormholes or time travel, and they don't know they're really interested in science. Sure, and so sure. Star Trek is a great lever to to get people to ask those questions, and and I try and do that in all my books. I mean, and and I think one of the reasons I'm excited about the greatest story and other books I've written, but this one is is I use the hook of this existential question: Why are we here? And also people's fascinations with religion, and try and turn that around in one way or another. To try and say, well, you know, these are the same kind of questions they're asking, but here, here are some interesting answers, and here are some new ways of asking questions. And and you know, well, I can't help. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. My friend Richard Dawkins does this, and I, he always reads something from his book. Go for so it. I've never, I've never done that, so I. Oh, but first, I just started to wait, do let me that. Get, now. Let me get the. Um, if you're gonna do that, let me get the red alert sound. Oh, uh, oh, We're doing something, something new here. Yeah, That's exactly. Good. Well, the trouble is, it sounds better when he reads because he's got that British. He accent. He does have a very nice British accent. But, so I say. Faced with the mystery of our existence, we have two choices. We can assume we have special significance and that somehow the universe was made for us. For many, this is the most comfortable choice. The second choice when addressing these transcendental mysteries is to make no assumption in advance about the answer, which leads to another story, one that I think is more humble. In this story, we evolve in a universe whose laws exist independently of our own being. In this story, we check the details to see if they might be wrong. In this story, we are going to be surprised at every turn. And I think that's the great thing, is that, is that this story is a story of surprises. And, and if we can get people hooked in because they are interested in the questions, yeah. and then to see the surprises, it, uh, I just think you can't help but appreciate the universe more. And, 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 and it's that joy factor that I'm really interested in. Do you think there's room for this sort of scientific inquiry and um, and religion? Well, as long as religion doesn't get in the way, there's room. As long as religion doesn't pretend to tell you anything about the real world in which we live. Right. I mean that not facetiously, because yeah. religion historically has tended to get in the way. It's to say, you know what, we don't want our kids to know this because it might affect their faith. 
Mm-hmm. And what awful child abuse is that to, to withhold things from your kids? So I think the 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 point is that that people shouldn't be afraid. In fact, there's a I opened the book with a quote from 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 Virgil, which is a famous quote. But the the at the end of the book, I mentioned that the line afterwards, which no one no one ever ever hears, is called "Release your fear." And the point is to put it in Star Trek language, boldly going where no one has gone before <laughs> is terrifying, yeah. in a principle, but it's exciting and exhilarating, and and my goodness, we should all want to do that. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who is a, a public uh, face of science and also has been fearless in your advocacy for freedom from religion, yeah. uh, do, do you feel, first of all, do you feel that being an atheist, forget secular, is atheism like really the last thing that's in the closet? Is it the last taboo? It, it is in this country because the word, a- I wrote a piece for the New Yorker called All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. <laughs> And but you know, and people said, "How dare you say that?" And they didn't read the article because right. it was being tongue in cheek. Because the point is, whenever I publicly ask a question about the existence of God, or or make a supposition that this doesn't sound might not sound reasonable, I'm suddenly labeled a militant atheist. And so I said, if asking questions, nothing should be sacred. Sure. So if asking questions makes me a militant atheist, then all scientists should be militant atheists. But I think you know, I think. It's important that nothing is sacred. I do. I do really think that. And and and, uh, but atheism is in in our our society a bad word. People don't want to say they're atheists right. because it has this connotation. In fact, there was a study done by some psychologists in the United States and Canada of a, a large su- sample of of adults and college students about trust. And and it turned out when they did the study, the people the atheists. With the lowest on the total poll, the atheists and rapists were tied, and that tells you something. Yeah. Religion has usurped morality, so that somehow, if you say, you know what, I, I just don't buy that, uh, yeah. it doesn't convince me. And by the way, most people who call themselves agnostics are really atheists because what atheism is all it is is saying, I'm not convinced by that story. Yeah, and it, it's not enough for me to believe. Well, it's it's perceived as being rude. It's perceived yeah. as like spitting on the flag yeah, or, yeah. or like... Well, um, and why is it rude to say, because everyone's an atheist about everyone else's religion. Sure, so, I don't so, believe in... Yeah, the Protestants yeah, don't yeah, believe yeah, in what yeah. the Catholics so they don't blah, somehow blah, blah, yeah. They don't somehow think it's rude to ta- tell me they're Catholics. Everyone is an atheist about every other religion. And as Richard Dawkins would say, and I would say, we're atheists are just atheists about one more religion than you are. <laughs> well, no, I, I think part of the thing that it, it is a closet. I, I personally think that if you go, if you tell somebody you're an atheist, like, oh, this guy's going to be a pain in the ass at a party, or ba- he's going to be rude to my grandma, yeah, a rude you know? or immoral or all these things, which is, yeah. it's just all you're saying is, you know, I base what the way I look at the world on on evidence, and I base my presumptions on evidence, and how can that be a rude bad thing? And it's amazing that it is. So I think it's more important, you know, I don't label myself an atheist because you know I've anything I was just saying the other day on, the, on a on a program that I, I label myself as an apatheist if anything because <laughs> I don't really care I mean God never enters into the conversation sure and I've been doing I've been a scientist for 35 years maybe a professional scientist I've never been to a meeting where God comes up because it's irrelevant yeah and so uh, it's not as if I spend all my lo- days worrying about science and religion I don't it's it the religion just just isn't important but at the same time it's important that public figures and to the extent that I'm a public figure, I, uh, I think it's important, are willing to say, look, I just don't buy the religious stuff. And it's important, and there are some well-known celebrities, who, and a number of them are in the movie we you know, produced, who, mm-hmm. who talk about the importance of science there, besides my friend Werner Herzog, who I just made a movie with, there's Woody Allen, there's Cameron Diaz, there's Cormac McCarthy, there's a number of people that people have heard of in, in this movie. But I, I'd love it if some politicians, and there are very few, were... Who are all non- many of whom are undoubtedly atheists, sure. but they're damn afraid to say it. Well, it's they'd be doomed. They would well, never get, get. Well, that's what you think, yeah. But if more yeah. of them started coming out, just like you know, it's exactly the, like coming out. It's it like is. sports figures coming yeah. out as being gay. It was it would there was doomed for a while, but now eventually, once some key ones break the ice, it's no big deal anymore. It's, yeah. It's it and. And that's what because I would like it's to see imp- happen. it's important because it still affects public policy. I mean, it yes. affects it affects the work of all we were talking about earlier to yes. find it, to get funding for science, and you have you know people like the who fund you have the, people like Mike Pence who doesn't believe in evolution, 
doesn't believe in our, evolution. Yeah, thinks our, in, in in zapping. Uh, was it giving electroshock therapy to gay people? Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And then, and then so it affects public policy. You got the. In fact, that's the point. Uh, I, uh, there are a number of friends of mine. I won't name drop because you heard of them. But but who, who would say it's not what people believe that matters is what they do. And that's a true statement, except what you believe affects what you do. So if every person was an island, you could believe, well, I have the, right here, I have the flying spaghetti monster on my lapel. You could believe in the flying spaghetti monster. But all of us are parents or, or relatives or teachers or bosses, other people. And therefore, what we believe does impact on what we do. And in that sense, we're not free to believe nonsense because it it produces bad policies like this ridiculous policy that somehow gays are sick or evil yeah. when in fact as I, I've been on TV many times with fundamentalists about this and when in fact I like to point out that all, all mammalian species about 10% of all mammalian species have homosexual encounters and by the way sheep have 10% of them have long term homosexual oh. relationships and I don't think they're immoral no you know, it's just know. A na- it's not Muzzle unnatural stuff. It's, yeah. it, so, so I think y- y- what we need uh, and is that look, you can't, you may not be able to get to ought from is, just by reason, but you'll never get to Oz without uh, to ought. You'll never get to Oz. You'll never get to ought without knowing what is is, and science tells you what is is. Yeah. So if you want to know how to make policies of what you should do, you darn well better know first of what you are doing. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking, let's backtrack a, a bit. You, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, sci-fi. I do want to run mm. some, I'd, be, I'd kick myself if I didn't get these from you. I want to talk about some sci-fi movies and which ones work for you as a scientist when you're in the theater and which ones make you want to throw popcorn at the okay. screen. Okay, okay. So, um, first, what, what's the one for you that you think, you, that comes to mind when, when I say, a movie that had uh, the worst science in it. And I'm not talking about like B-movie Flash Gordon <laughs> stuff. I'm talking something that presented itself as somewhat legitimate. Uh, well, I don't know what they presented. You know, one movie that comes to mind is a, a reporter once asked if they could go to this movie with me and, and sit with me while I watched a science fiction movie. First, I should tell you, when I watch science fiction movies, I try and suspend disbelief. Yeah. So you put it's, your, it's, it's a story that matters. Yeah. yeah. It, but, and the only time the, st- the science gets in the way is when it's so bad that I can't appreciate the story. So as long as it doesn't, as long as I, it, it's not, it's not so bad that I can't that I can't imagine plausibility at some level. And so this this movie is called. Do you, you remember Starship Troopers? I do. Yes. Yeah, and, I, and it was because I guess I was I was I had a reporter with me. Every thing in that movie was so stupid that these ants poop out things from their rear end that it's going so fast to travel across the galaxy and other people it was just there was every bit of it was nonsense and so that was one example of, of but yeah I find that movie to be great a great work of satire uh, well, I, and maybe. I appreciate it on a satirical level and I well, think I, it's I, I, I think I'd rather if given satire I'd rather have Guardians of the Galaxy I think <laughs> Does that one have good signs? I don't. Think I don't it know. Does. I don't. But uh, they, tra- no, they travel interstellarly. Not, no, but well, yeah. they all travel interstellarly. They have to to, to make the to make the story go. But they don't do it in such a way that obviously stupid. There's some magic, right? They go yeah. into something and zip. They they're, go to hyperdrive. You know, well, they go to warp yeah, drive. Yeah, warp, warp, it's all versions of warp drive, exactly. Yeah. But they don't say you know these ants have hypersonic butts or something. <laughs> You know. <laughs> All right. So Starship Troopers gets gets the red X. Yeah. What was one that that uh, I mean the classic 2001: A Space Odyssey? Does that one do it for you? No. Or? Well, it was neat. If, if it, 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 I watched it when it first came out. I'm old enough to, but but uh, so it was very impressive in its day. But interestingly enough, like most, like a lot of science fiction, it missed all the important stuff. So look, in 2001, we already be having hotels in the sky and traveling yeah. to, to other planets. And then it realized that, that, that how dangerous and costly space exploration mm. was. And and um, and it, and it as I like to say, most science fiction missed the internet, you know, which is... Right. Which, which, so the real world... Oh, there's a great, there's a great bit in 2001 on the moon when they, yeah. he has the... Give, Dr. Floyd gives yeah. his lecture yeah. and then they go off and, and to go to the, see the monolith yeah. and dude's reading a newspaper. Yeah, you know how yeah. about that? Not a and, tablet. And not I a, know exactly. Yeah. And so I think the point is that science fiction could be is, is imaginative and fun, but the the real world beats it every day of the week, as far as I'm concerned. Which is why I do science. Mm. I like science fiction uh, and I enjoy it. But but if you really want to see what's if you really want to be surprised, 
look at reality. Wow. All right. That's a good way to end it. I like that. Good. But before we do, okay. I almost got you out of here. What is a Calabi Yao manifold? Because <laughs> this is my co- this is a real thing from science that has the coolest name. It's a Calabi Yao manifold. Yeah. Well, it's a kind of surface in 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 a in a, give, in a many dimensions, many more than four usually. <laughs> oh man. That has very weird properties, <laughs> but you can't visualize it. It you can you can characterize it by certain mathematical invariants that describe the 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 surface as we can describe a sphere topologically and but it's there's it's it can't be it's a mathematical quantity just like um, you know if I ask you what pi is at some level well you can tell me what pi is in terms of a circumference of a circle sure yeah but if I ask you what does the number pi mean to you it, it it's a you know it's yeah. a transcendental number and it, it's all sorts of things but Clavier manifolds are weird surfaces in higher dimensions where where will we find them? we have to go to well the oh they're dimension. necessary well. In, it turns out that if string theory is relevant, um, then um, then it pr- it needs extra dimensions in general, yeah. and the and the kind of solutions for space and time in these extra dimensions can be these weird manifolds, and and that's okay because the extra dimensions get wrapped up and so small you don't see them generally. That's the way string theory gets out of the fact that its generic prediction is quite different than the world in which we see. And these, so the mathematics describes the properties of these extra dimensions that are hidden, but that determine the properties of fields in our dimension. That's the idea of string theory. Is right, things are moving so fast we, they're well, in multiple well, dimensions. Well, well, it's not that so much. Is is that is that the way they vibrate and move in the other dimensions affects the quantities that you measure in our dimension? Was the idea one of the ideas of string theory? And and it's you're a little mixed on string theory, right? I'm you're, very mixed. It's an interesting idea, well motivated. But certainly hasn't yet. I mean, it's produced a lot of interesting physics that's relevant to other things. The mathematics has been useful in other areas of physics, but to do what it originally was claimed to do, which is to describe our universe, it's been abysmally a failure. Mm. We don't. I mean, because and a failure in the sense that not that it's been shown to be wrong. Maybe a failure is the wrong word, but it, it hasn't yet demonstrated that it it has any relation to our our universe. Is there, any- there are lots of neat ideas that come out of it. Let me make that clear. Yeah. And they've been used to solve problems in physics that we couldn't have solved otherwise. But but to say that our universe has extra dimensions and that this theory explains why the forces of nature are unified, that was all hoped in 1984, and that hope has not been realized. Is there a difference between string theory and superstring theory? Are they no, there is. Well, there the is. There is, String theory was actually, in my book, I actually point out, it was developed in the 1960s to describe one of the four forces of nature, and it was wrong. But the mathematics was wrong, but there were a small group of people who liked the mathematics so much that they kept, they kept, it. <laughs> they kept it. And eventually they said, maybe we've got the right answer to the wrong problem. Because it didn't work to describe the strong force. But then people realized, oh, but maybe it could describe gravity. That was 20 years later. Mm. And so it got revived. But then to describe gravity and make sense, you needed a new symmetry called supersymmetry. And then string theory became right. superstring. Because okay. without supersymmetry, you required to have 26 dimensions. That seems like a lot. It does. So, so yeah. they said, well, you know what? If you introduce supersymmetry, you you only need like 10 or 11 dimensions. So a lot fewer of them. Um, well, the third time's a charm. So yeah, the maybe. next the next variant. Maybe, although most scientific ideas are wrong. That's what makes it so. <laughs> I mean, if it wasn't, anyone could do it, right? I got to throw one more. What is M theory? I M love theory. M. I love the name M. That sounds like something straight out of it, 007. It's it, what so does. good. M theory is what super string theory has become. Oh, Oh, yeah. So it went from string theory to superstring theory. It, it, now it, we're in M, M theory. theory. Because it turned out strings aren't the important things in the theory after all. <laughs> There's things called man- they're basically like manifolds, membranes, okay. and 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 uh, they're called brains. Yes. And and so M, M may stand for no one knows what it stands for, but a reasonable thing that it might stand for is membranes. And, okay. And and so that's where string theory is evolving, and who knows what it will become next? It could be Q theory next. I don't know. <laughs> well, Q would like that for yeah, sure. Yeah, I know exactly. Is that the area? That is not the area of what is the area of science that you are most jazzed about, other than bringing it to the people in a book like this? Well, there's particle physics, but string yeah. theory is particle particle physics. But I'm pretty jazzed about the physics that really does explain the universe. Mm. That, that that is amazing that most people don't know about. They've heard of superstring theory, but they haven't heard of gauge theory or or, 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 or or electroweak theory, the real theories that describe the real universe are amazing. And while string theory has gotten a lot yeah. of the, the, the press... It's a lot of press, yeah. The, the real universe, as my friend Frank Wilczek says, I, it's not I, he didn't want a theory of everything, but he wants a theory of something. 
<laughs> so it's uh, it's 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 a guy. You're the hype man for these real theories. Well, I don't like to use the word hype. In fact, I'm the anti-hype man. I think scientists shouldn't hype. Things because it comes back and bites us in the butt. All right, we true. should celebrate. Celebrate. I'm, the, right. I'm the celebration man. All right, good. So, what's the next big thing in science? We did. We got the Higgs in 2012. What's the next big one we can set As our watch I to? I always say when I'm asked that question. Yeah, yeah. If I knew what the best, best next big thing was, I'd be doing it. <laughs> All right. That's cool. why discoveries are discoveries. They're surprises. Yeah. So let's wait and see. Well, listen, this book is now out in, in stores and on, uh, you can Amazon it, you can Kindle it, you can Nook, you can Schnook, you can do it on you all those things. You can listen to me, if you want to go to sleep with me, you can listen to the Audible version. Is the Audible version also? Yeah, yeah. The complete, yeah. But you can't look at the diagrams of the well, Audible Well, there's an Audible version with, with PDFs. Oh, so you, when it's, you say, yeah. now look at your phone. Yeah, yeah, I had to read it differently than I wrote it. <laughs> As That's you great. can now see, yeah, it was, as it was, you can now see, pick challenge. up your phone, but not if you're driving. Yeah, if you're driving. Not if you're driving. <laughs> if you're driving, stop at a gas station and then look right. at it. Yeah. Cool. All right, so it's called the greatest story ever told so far. Why are we here? Uh, this was a blast. I'm so glad you were able to come by. Me and too. you're doing a book tour right now. Yeah, I'm, you're I'm, always talking. Check. Uh, you got a web, what? Your website is yeah, probably you, your name, right? Yeah, yeah. You can find my website online. And on, and yeah, this week I'm on the East Coast and the rest of the week, and then I'm in the West Coast in California, and then I'll be up in Seattle. Okay. And up, and, so if and you want to, you, you just did a talk with uh, with Alan Alda. Yeah, in New York. Two City, nights ago. Two nights ago in New York. Yeah. So you know, this is no joke. You know, yeah. you get uh, Hawkeye Pierce is involved. It's yeah, really exactly. Cool. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming by, and we'll talk to you next time. I'll beam you out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.